generally uh, spiritual teachings tell us you are not your body whether it's the Christian tradition pointing to identifying with a sense of an eternal soul as being one's true identity rather than this body or whether it's the Eastern uh, traditions pointing to the our tendency to identify with the contractions and processes that are here giving us a sense of body that can't seem to contain or explain or actually show us anything real that we can find here as being who I am. And so, stimulated maybe, or inspired even, by the idea that I'm not this body, our practice easily sets out to look for something else. Buddhists tend to refer to emptiness. And we might be trying to find emptiness as some way to see that I'm not this body. The traditions might speak about something like pure consciousness. And we might find that we're trying to be or trying to find some kind of pure consciousness which sounds much simpler and better and less messy. Pure consciousness. That sounds like a great way to meditate. Let me just be pure consciousness rather than "Mm, this lot, this discomfort, this agitation, this wandering mind, this uncooperative legs, etc. And there's a certain truth, it may be a truth that you know from your own experience. It may be a truth that you intuit. It may be a truth that doesn't really make sense to you yet, and that hopefully will make sense. Not so much in a conceptual way, but in a, in a, in a real way, as our days go by. But there's a certain truth to that fact that we're not this body. Certainly not that which we think of as body. And yet, ironically, it's also true to say that we're not other than this body. Somebody was complaining about contradictions to me recently in teachings. Well, there's a good one. We're not this body, and we're not other than this body. It's true, when we say we're not this body, that however much we look into this, however much we look into heart and mind and body, however much we look into all this experience as I take 
that I take as being me, who I am, my ideas, my feelings, my body, my memories, my history, my hopes, my needs, my wishes, my relationships. It's true that whatever appears as being who I take myself to be, if I stay steady with that, if I stay present to, connected with, interested in that, if I look more into that, I can't find really any uh, consistent me in there. I just find the thoughts about what's happening, the feelings about what's happening. And just in being here these few hours today is enough to show us that thoughts and feelings, there's rather a lot of them. And they come and go rather quickly. And they're not a very reliable sense of who I am. One minute I have the, the thought that presents itself as who I am. Oh, I'm so bored, you might say. As if that's who I am, I'm bored. And yet in another moment, I might say, oh, I'm so hungry. So which one are you? Bored or hungry? Or I might say, well, I'm the one who is bored in some moments and then hungry in another moment. And yet that one who is quite unexamined. If we try to look behind the boredom or the hunger or the state that's there in the moment, what do you find? Do you find anything that shows up as being the one who has those states? Or actually, is it just some kind of mirage, some supposition, that actually all we find is the state itself? Body like this, mind like this, heart like this, world like this. And the shifting symphony of all of that. So, given that we're not this body, how come all the emphasis on it? How come all the encouragement to be here, to feel what's being felt, to know what's being known, to inhabit what's arising? In that encouragement, and so it may be a little tricky with the language. It's not that we're asking you to, to attend to the body that you think you are. That's, I know that's a little bit of a clumsy phrase. Body as thing. Body as this uh, flesh, fleshy thing. As this uh, bag of bones as this thing to which I attribute um, age, gender, uh, history, various traits that I might like or not like about myself. What we're asking you to attend to is um, this field of experience. Mind can't get hold of that very well. Mind can easily get hold of body as thing, right? This body, male body, 45-year-old body, 
body that's slowly stiffening, sagging, graying, wrinkling, etc. That, that's just this one. But you can add on your own uh, attributes. But body, we're ar- body that we're asking you to attend to, right? to be intimate with, this, what do I earlier called this dance of sensation. We can't, as soon as we make some idea, as soon as mind get hold, gets hold of body as thing, we've lost the immediacy, the dance, the ambiguity. So it's a practice. It's a practice uh, in attending to bodily life. To let go of body as thing and see uh, if we can cultivate a, a more direct, a more immediate relationship. A relationship that doesn't need to be mitigated by our ideas about this body. And in many ways that's a big ask, that's a radical ask. Because we're used to mitigating all of our experience with our thoughts about it. One of the um, benefits of learning to have a more direct, a more intimate, a more immediate relationship with bodily life is that the basic experience of hanging out in this embodied field of experience, the basic sense of it is it's quite pleasant. It's relaxing. It's nice. It's nice to be here. Sometimes, if you've been, especially if you've been maybe struggling with tiredness or boredom or restlessness or physical discomfort through the day, that might sound like a bit of a stretch to say, oh, the basic experience of hanging out in bodily life is pleasant. But maybe that can serve as an invitation to that discovery. Actually, we can all uh, arrange ourselves so that the body isn't in um, a great deal of discomfort. And I'm aware that some of you may have uh, ongoing uh, pain issues or ongoing uh, chronic conditions that make certain postures or certain activities uh, painful. But even so, we can find a way to connect and just invite you now to connect, not with an aspect of body that's particularly painful, but see, is there a way you can just feel into your experience where you can have a sense of, ju- of the basic aliveness of this bodily life? basic way in which life is supporting you being here. The fizz of the aliveness of your cells.
the fact that actually our cells themselves are conscious. That's how we can, we can feel what's happening throughout the whole of our nervous system, throughout this whole sphere, spherical sense of presence, of awareness. And increasingly our practice gives us access to the ease, the rest, the relief of abiding in, of abiding at rest in this bodily life. And as our practice deepens, and that's the, that's the fruits, that's how it feels bodily. As our practice deepens, how it feels mentally is that the mental life clarifies an increasing sense of luminosity, of clarity, of wisdom. We just know more clearly, more brightly, more indirectly, more intuitively, what's happening. As the emotional life, uh, as our practice deepens in terms of emotional life, what that feels like emotionally is uh, there's an increasing sense of love, a capacity to be intimate with this life, an increasing capacity to care for what's happening. And as our practice deepens, what that, the fruits of that and how it feels physically are oh, as an increasing sense of ease, of relaxation, of being at home in this body. So, you might say, well, if, if, if that's the basic, if I'm suggesting or claiming that that's the basic physical experience, then why doesn't body feel like that more often? And the fact is we're, uh, we're used to in our bodily experience being stimulated. And the stimulation itself, nothing wrong with that, it's quite normal. But if we look, we've developed all of us certain habits that go along with the stimulation. So, three kinds of stimulation. Pleasant stimulation, unpleasant stimulation, and neutral stimulation. I'm pretty sure there's no other kind. Right? All experience is either pleasant or unpleasant, or really neither, not charged one way or the other. And so our practice invites us to, to see how, do I, how may I be responding to those stimulations in such a way that, that the, um, the stimulations cause a certain kind of reactivity or restlessness or agitation or resistance that means that the relationship with bodily life has a lot of friction in it, a lot of struggle in it. 
not much ease or relaxation. Those three kinds of stimulation have a certain kind of evolutionary pressure to them. There's a certain evolutionary pressure around, for example, reacting to the unpleasant through avoidance. Right? It makes sense. You know, for th- we evolved for thousands and thousands of years needing to avoid discomfort. When discomfort represented danger. Danger of getting too cold. Danger of getting too hungry. Danger of getting attacked. So when uh, the unpleasant experience, what kind of unpleasant experiences? Unpleasant do kind of temperature, uh, unpleasant sense of fear or mistrust of a person or a situation. There's a certain way in which the avoidance of pain has had that evolutionary uh, build-up and is useful. Similarly with the seeking of pleasure, the liking of pleasure, the wanting pleasure. Certain evolutionary uh, way in which that we're we're biologically conditioned to like pleasure and to seek pleasure. And just for example, the way sexual pleasure leads to procreation, which keeps us going as a species. So there's a certainly ev- certain evolutionary movement to that. With the neutral. It's interesting, it's not so sure. There doesn't seem to be much evolutionary pressure. And my sense is, and I don't I have no idea if this is, uh, I mean, this doesn't, I can't give you any uh, objective evidence for this. But my sense is that our relationship to the neutral has really changed a lot in the last few hundred or maybe few thousand years. And even though a few thousand years sounds like a long time, it's actually a tiny blip in evolutionary time, right? Human beings have been around for many, many thousands of years. And the sense is, and I've just been reading a very fascinating book about human history by Yuval Yohari. I don't know if if you haven't heard of it. It's called Sapiens, and it's the history of this species. It's extraordinary. And historically, humans had a lot more downtime, a lot more neutral time. But we've, as, as we've evolved culturally, or uh, as we've evolved the extensions of our culture, in other words, as we've evolved a lot around how we can avoid discomfort, and we've evolved an extraordinary array of means of seeking ple- and getting pleasure. So that that evolutionary pressure actually, for most of us, probably isn't playing out very much of the time. Most of the discomfort you're avoiding probably isn't very life-threatening. Right? The kind of cold that you might be uh, avoiding isn't the kind that's likely to give you hypothermia. The kind of fear or mistrust or anxiety that uh, you're getting stimulated by probably isn't life-threatening most of the time, etc. 
And the kind of pleasure that we're seeking out often isn't necessary to keep our species going, right? in whatever sphere that may be. So that the neutral, as we've evolved uh, these different ways of behaving, we might say, it, it seems like it's changed our uh, relationship to pain and pleasure. And I don't mean when I speak about it like this to be a particular indictment of either very modern culture or certainly not a very Western culture particularly. This is something that was definitely already going on in the time of the Buddha. So a few thousand years already. And Buddha points to it very much in terms of looking at these stimulations. And increasingly, it seems, we sit, tend to see the neutral as also something to get away from, something uninteresting. We tend to be not very good at downtime. When you look at other animals, you look at mammals, they have the same um, uh, impulse to avoid pain and discomfort. And they have the same impulse to enjoy and to seek out pleasure. But they don't seem to have the same relationship with the neutral. My, my dog is the most instructive of this. Right? Definitely uh, doesn't like uh, discomfort. Definitely likes pleasure. But when things are neutral, yeah, he just chills out. He's extremely good at it. He can just hang out and be neutral all day. People say, oh, it's a dog's life. <laughs> As if that's not such a good thing. If you're my dog, our dog, that's a pretty good life. So, in an environment like this, we're really invited to look at these stimulations and see what we do with them. For this to be a laboratory, in other words, of studying what do I do with pleasant experience, unpleasant experience, and neutral experience that create some kind of friction, that create some kind of um, agitation, that create some kind of incapacity to just hang out, find some rest and ease with the basic relief and freedom of being of inhabiting this human life, this bodily life, this feeling life, this conscious life. And when I say that this environment can be a laboratory for that, I don't mean that this can be just about quietening down those stimulations. Spoke yesterday about how some had spoken about wanting to be quiet here. And some had spoken about the, the beautiful way, the relieving way, in which oh, there is a certain quietening down that happens here. Right? The kinds of stimulations here are less um, gross, less coarse, less intense, you might say. And this is an environment that, in a way, is designed to have 
not, not very intense stimulations. There's not much that's very, very pleasant there. Although our senses may start to really open up in a new kind of way, maybe even, to our capacity to, to feel beauty, for example, around us. But that's got more to do with our sensitivity. And there's nothing here that's particularly unpleasant. In fact, Gaia House is really set up to be an environment of care. Although it may be in the same way that we get more sensitive to the that we may get more sensitive to pleasant and to beauty and appreciation, it may be that we also notice we get more sensitive to the unpleasant. We find ourselves making a big drama out of sitting still for a few minutes. Or we find ourselves making a big drama about how much the person in front of us took at lunch or something else. But generally, the stimulations are less intense and that l does lead to a certain quietening down. Which, and that quietening down can feel sometimes, oh, relieving. And yet, if that's what we come on retreat for, just to have our reactivity to stimulation quieten down for a while, well, that's nice. But it won't be of much use to us when we then go leave Guy House and the level and intensity of stimulation goes up again. So rather than coming here just to benefit from the quietening down, we rather have the opportunity to use the quietening down to really look closely. Because it's easier. It's easier to look closely at our reactivity to stimulation when the stimulations themselves are less intense. So this is like training wheels for life. Right? If you don't know how to ride a bike, it's easier to start with training wheels. And yet the point of the training wheels isn't just so that you can uh, wobble around and not fall over and have it easy. It's to learn how to cycle without training wheels. I'm not quite sure if this is a good <laughs> uh, metaphor or not. But same, it's not that we're, we use the quietening down of stimulations here just so that it's nice or easy or peaceful for some days but so as to get to, to use the opportunity to see how we react to stimulation, to get skillful with our reactions to stimulation, to discover a possibility, a possibility that we can't really conceive of, actually, of how to be free in the midst of the natural stimulations of our life of how, how we might respond freely to that which is pleasant, to the beauty and the wonder and the uh, extraordinariness of human life, and to discover how we might respond freely to the inevitable discomforts and disappointments and disasters of our human life.
and how we might respond freely to those moments where there's nothing special, where there isn't so much stimulation, where there's the invitation to land. to expand rather than to go off in search of the next thing. So, what are your strategies? What's the day, what has the day been showing you about what you do with the inevitable moments, for instance, of unpleasant experience. When there's that stimulation of uh, discomfort in the legs, so it might be just a physical discomfort that can easily go along with meditation. Or it might be the emotional uh, unpleasantness of some unresolved situation in our life which are, uh, which comes to us in the form of uh, images and memories and the emotions that go with that. Or it might be the, just the unpleasantness of uh, just the chattering mind that won't shut up. And getting, and the way we can experience that as so unpleasant, mostly because we're trying to make it shut up. Busy mind, noisy mind, that can be unpleasant. But trying to stop it, that's really unpleasant. And that, of course, is the strategy. That's the style. That's what we generally try to do with the unpleasant. We try to stop it, to get away from it, or to fight with it. And like I say, there may be some, there's some evolutionary pressure that for some unpleasant things, getting away from the unpleasant is a wise thing, or standing up to the unpleasant is a wise thing. But that's not what we're talking about here. And investigating our style with unpleasant experience isn't going to compromise our capacity to get away from that which is dangerous, and to stand up against that which needs uh, standing up to. But we tend to apply that in places where it doesn't serve actually to keep us safe. It, where it actually serves just to keep us agitated, to keep us resistant. It's sometimes hard to see because we, we, we tend to reinforce the idea that the problem is in the unpleasantness. This unpleasant thing, this unpleasant feeling in my legs is the problem. And in that case, if only I would just move my legs, the problem would be over. Everything would be fine in my life. If the problem was in the unpleasantness, take away the unpleasantness, the problem would be gone. But of course, unpleasantness just happens. 
No, no human being has ever managed to escape unpleasantness. So worth finding out what do I do with the unpleasant? To feel in this bodily experience the tendency to contract around it, to fight with it, to push it away, to resist it. And to find out, is that helpful? Does that dissolve the unpleasantness? Or does it actually reinforce the unpleasantness? Does it actually make the initial unpleasantness much more unpleasant? That's the extraordinary thing, is that our resistance and our fighting with the unpleasant tends to make it much, much more unpleasant. And yet, when we haven't really investigated that or haven't seen that, that's the loop we're caught in. Fighting with the unpleasant, making it more unpleasant in the hope that it'll lead to it not being so unpleasant. Like that story of Nasruddin eating chilies with tears streaming down his face, sweating profusely and still eating chilies. And his friends ask him, Mullah, what are you doing? And he says, I keep hoping I'll get a sweet one. This is, an, this is a great laboratory for studying how we react to the natural stimulations of life. All of us, we just hang out here during the day. We hang out quietly. We hang out sitting. We hang out walking. We hang out stretching. We hang out eating. We're just hanging out during the day, paying attention. And for all of us, pleasant moments and experiences, unpleasant moments and experiences, and neutral moments and experiences. And the opportunity to see what am I doing with the unpleasant and do I need to do that? What would happen if I dared not to contract? To let the unpleasant just be here because it's the thing of the moment. To let it be felt. To let it be included. When we have that sense of body as thing, I was speaking about earlier, my body, my leg, then that unpleasant sensation in my leg feels particularly threatening. Because it's happening to me, my leg. When we allow ourselves this edgeless, fluid symphony of sensation and vibration that's happening here. Let me find that part of that is some heat, some pressure, some density, some tingling. We might have a different relationship to it. When we get, if we look underneath the label of pain, the label of my leg, we might find something that's more alive, more dynamic, something that doesn't need resisting to be resolved. We might find that 
unpleasant stimulus isn't what's causing us a sense of problem, a sense of being in conflict with life, but rather our relationship to it that hurts. Similarly, with the pleasant experience, moment or two of pleasant experience in meditation, and just to see what we do with that, the stories, the fantasies, the fussing that we do with that, or the relationship with the meals, And, oh, there's a moment of sensory pleasure in this desert of a day called the retreat schedule. And then to see how much energy can go into anticipating the next meal or wondering what's for the next meal or, or whatever it might be. It's to charging up the sense of stimulation around the pleasant. Or just a fantasy relationship with the pleasant. Fantasy of all the things I could be enjoying, I should be enjoying. Well, fantasy relationship with meditation. Reaching out for that, that blissful experience that I've heard about or I've seen in those New Age magazines where everyone's meditation looks so oh, beautiful. Everyone's wearing vests and their <laughs> hair's just been washed, etc. It tends to be that our relationship with the natural, beautiful, pleasant stimulation of life is one that actually strangles the beauty in it. Because of the sense of need, the sense of uh, uh, anxiety. Of trying to have it be pleasant. And ironically, the trying to have things be pleasant causes a kind of neurotic anxiety that, yeah, that strangles the, the sweetness, the delight, the joy, the capacity to enjoy. And the opportunity to really explore that relationship with the neutral. Many, many neutral moments in the day. Walking meditation. I have many neutral moments. And yet how easily, in mid or wandering, neutral, it's a bit neutral. If it's really unpleasant, we tend to be very engaged with it. Oh, I've got to fix this, I've got to sort it out, I've got to deal with it's very pleasant, oh, you get very carried away. But when things are rather neutral, mind just tends to drift. Either just drifts into unconsciousness, just wandering, vague mind. Or it tends to drift so much that we start wandering off before we even know it. We find ourselves in front of the tea urn, right? <laughs> the, the walking meditation has just somehow led us <laughs> off there, looking for some stimulation hoping it's inside the tea urn. Or neutral experience leads us into some kind of confusion or anxiety of not knowing what to do. Right? The nature of the pleasant is we fixate on the, the object, 
this thing I want or this thing I love or this thing I like, this thing I have to have, this thing I want to keep, this experience I want to have. Same with the unpleasant. We fixate on what's wrong, this problem, this difficulty. I have to get away from or do away with or whatever. But the neutral, we tend to drift away from the object, either into vagueness or into confusion and anxiety. Oh, things are neutral. We say, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know uh, how I should be practicing. Maybe that neutral object offers something important. In other words, maybe it's important for us to look at how we respond to that stimulation. And if you notice, you're feeling just bored, just uh, restless, confused. Just to see if you can come close to that state. If you can sense what's going on in bodily life. If you can listen to the stimulation, whatever one of those three flavors it is. Our practice points us, is pointing us to a free relationship with the natural stimulations of life. But like I said earlier, that free relationship is actually inconceivable. So when we talk, even try to, when we try to conceive of what it might be like to inhabit life freely, inhabit pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experience freely, we tend even just to conceive of that in one of the, in those three terms. So sometimes we'll hear that, oh, free in the pleasant, free in the unpleasant, free in the neutral. And we might say, well, that sounds boring. Sounds dull. Sounds rubbish. Hmm? Conceive of it in unpleasant terms. Or we conceive of it in neutral terms. As if it would be just peaceful. Oh, peaceful. I wouldn't be sti- I would, the stimulation wouldn't provoke me. I would just be at peace. As if there would be hardly anything happening in body and mind. Like that. Or... So we conceive of it in neutral terms, or we conceive of it in pleasant terms. Somebody said to me very recently, so if I wasn't reacting to any of the three stimuluses, would I just be in bliss? those, these, Those three stimuluses shape our sense of experience so strongly that we that even the absence of reactivity tends to uh, evoke for us one of those three qualities. Actually, the quality that it has to to freely respond to the pleasant, the sweet, the beautiful, to freely respond to that which is unpleasant, <coughs> unwanted, unwelcome. And to freely respond to the moments of life that actually aren't pulling or pushing us in either direction. What that actually uh, feels like is it has the taste 
of freedom to it. It has a naturalness to it. It has an ease to it. It has a dynamism to it. It has a creativity to it. Creativity, a freedom to respond to life. Rather than to blindly or habitually react to these different flavors of experience. So pay attention, friends. This is how we point ourselves in the direction of freedom. The pleasant is a great opportunity when it arises. The unpleasant is a great opportunity when it arises. And the neutral is a great opportunity when it arises. So the good news is, any experience, every experience, is a good opportunity. So, please enjoy your supper. Please stay close to yourselves. Please see how just these moments, these stimulations, these experiences are playing out in you. Let's see what you find out. And we'll meet back here together at 7 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.